This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Your eyes on the times, you walk ready to speak up. But with so many problems, you're exhausted trying to keep up. This is the Church Politics Podcast, where you can get political commentary from a biblical worldview. We're not trying to be conservative or progressive. We're trying to be Christian in the public square. And I'm black as heaven. I'm made in God's image. Nobody can change my settings. Hey man, cut off my knees and put it into my search. It's easy to sell your soul when you don't know what it's worth. No good and camp. You're listening to the and campaigns church politics podcast with Justin Gibney, aka Bishop Cooper's grandson, and the Windy City representative, the baddest brother above the Mason Dixon line, my play cousin, the right reverend Christopher Butler. Chris, we are less than 30 days, right under 30 days away from college football, which is always a great and exciting season in the Gibney household. Now, those of you who've been listening to this show for a while know I'll be cheering for the Commodores and I'll be cheering for the Bulldogs, the Bulldogs of South Carolina State, to be exact. Don't get it messed up. But it's always fun to just get ready for that. There's something about college football, and I like NFL too, but there's something about college football that really just gets me excited, especially that those first, you know, the bands, the crowd, the students, all that. Just gets me really excited. Now, Chris, are you a college football fan or not? I can't I can't recall. So I happen to go to universities that don't have okay. football teams, so I it, I never got bitten okay. by that. Well ball. you can always cheer for the Commodores, man. We we you know, we we could use you. <laughs> we will be, you know, talking every so often about college football, man. But I, I'll I'll do my best to read up on it. I, I did go to, you know, a handful of games at UVA where my okay. wife went. So Okay. That's all right. I mean, they're not SEC, but we still, you know, they're close. They're still in the South. They're close enough. It's the best I can do. As long as they're not Big Ten, we're good. All right. So we're good with that, man. But so much has gone on. You know, Trump just got indicted. We'll talk a little bit about this. The newest indictment, the third of three. And so there's just a whole lot to talk about, man. But before we even get into that, Chris, please, everybody go check out. Go to the Ann Campaign's website, as I've been saying over and over again, and check out the How I Got Over docu-series where we talk about yes, the, the role that the authority of Scripture played in the black church, in our art, in our social engagement, in the establishment of the church, and so on. There are a lot of false narratives out there. And we want to make sure that you get the true history, not perfect, not trying to create a perfect narrative, but really to, to clear up some things that we think have been misrepresented in pop culture. Really solid information. And if, if I can give a, a particular shout out for how I got over, if you're listening to this and you are a, a preacher, this uh, docu, docu-series has aided this week's sermon preparation okay. uh, in my life. So it's a good resource. You should really go check it out. Yeah, there's a word in there. There's a couple words in there. So if, if you want to learn more about the history or you just need a word, that is a good place to get one. You can also watch our uh, whole life project video, which I think has been outstanding. You can see that on Instagram. You can see that on YouTube. If you want to get a better narrative, I think a corrective narrative on what this conversation about the sanctity of life is all about. 
So we think that's important. I want to give a shout out, as always, to our patrons and, and patrons and supporters for supporting us in what we do and how we do it. If you want to support the Church Politics Podcast directly, you can go to patreon.com slash church politics. If you do that, not only you're supporting this commentary and supporting the movement, but you also get access to special premium episodes. And Chris, can you tell them, tell them what this next episode is going to be about? I think they'll be excited to hear it. Yeah, we're actually going to be able to talk to an actress in LA, in Hollywood, about this Hollywood strike. And this is a really good insight. Somebody who's been involved with the union, somebody who's won some Emmy awards, but not like super famous. So somebody's like really making a living in this industry, solid, solid believer, and going to be able to give us some, some rich perspective that you probably haven't heard in other places. Wait, they're believers in Hollywood? Hey, we're going to see this, man. <laughs> no, nah, I'm, I'm, I'm kidding. Yeah, you, want, you guys are going to want to check this out. I mean, this, this is changing a lot of things. I mean, it's going to affect what we're able to watch on television. But this strike, there hasn't, in my understanding, there hasn't really been a strike like this since Ronald Reagan was the head of that union, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's, it is really so historic. Th- there's a lot of history here, and it's important because as AI mm-hmm. comes on board and all that stuff, it is important for workers just in general to make sure that they're, you know, that they're empowered and that they're not being taken for granted or taken advantage of. So uh, shout out to those folks who are, you know, standing up for, for themselves and, and we, you know, we support folks' ability to do so. All right. All right. But let's get into it. We got a lot of stuff to talk about again. So grab your Bible, get your mind right and prepare to think. Not like a Republican, not like a Democrat, but to think like a Christian. And as usual, we're going to start off with some scripture. I want to start off, Chris, at uh, Psalm 78, verse 72. And it reads, And David shepherded them with integrity of heart. With skillful hands, he led them. That's the New International Version. Other versions say that he shepherded them or guided them with an upright heart or a true heart. Now, the term here connotes completeness, soundness, and even a sort of innocence. He also had skillful hands. He guided them with understanding. He wasn't off in the clouds somewhere. He understood the task that confronted him. And I think every leader, anyone who calls himself a leader, should want to be leading with integrity of heart and with skillful hands. That's straight out the Bible. Now, Chris, While we both know some great Christian leaders out there, the church in general, in my opinion, is suffering from a leadership crisis, especially in the public square. I think that too many of our self-proclaimed leaders in the church are actually followers in the public square. They follow secular activists and secular academics, or they follow or they're followers of conservative ideology. But especially talking about our context, I think too many, again, in my opinion, Too many Christian leaders are not actually leading. I think too many leaders in the in urban areas are merely repeating kind of uncritiqued regurgitations of what their favorite secular influencers have already said. And as a consequence, they don't challenge the ideological narratives that need to be challenged in the public square for the good of the people. So, for instance, the idea that not prosecuting crime is good for the black community needs to be challenged. This ties in with the conversation that we had last week about black on black crime, or we can use a different term, whatever you want to call it. Is that real? Is it something we should be concerned about? This kind of ties into that conversation. 
Now, of course, Chris, we want due process. We want an impartial bench. We want an impartial jury. But part of justice, Chris, is penal. It's about protecting those who've been violated by punishing those who are committing crimes. Those who habitually commit crimes against the community aren't pro-social justice. They're redeemable and they must be treated fairly. And I'll always advocate that they be treated fairly. But there's also a social justice component in how we address criminality. Part of setting the captives free is also penalizing those who curtail their freedom by terrorizing them. Lawlessness puts the people in bondage. That's why I want to give a shout out, Chris, today to Bishop Bob Jackson of Acts of Faith Full Gospel Church in Oakland, California, and also the Oakland NAACP for standing for the people rather than maintaining false narratives. Last week, Bishop Jackson and the Oakland NAACP released a very forthright letter calling Oakland elected officials to end Oakland's public safety crisis. Okay, and I want to read I got that I got that letter here with me right here and I want to read part of this letter, a good part of this letter, just so y'all get a feel for what they're saying. And here's a letter. Oakland residents are sick and tired of our intolerable public safety crisis that overwhelmingly impacts minority communities. Murders, shootings, violent armed robberies, home invasions, car break ins sideshows and highway shootouts have become a pervasive fixture of life in Oakland. We call on all elected officials to unite and declare a state of emergency and bring together massive resources to address our public safety crisis. African-Americans are disproportionately hit the hardest by crime in East Oakland and other parts of the city. But residents from all parts of the city report that they do not feel safe. Women are targeted by young mobs and viciously beaten and robbed in downtown and uptown neighborhoods. Asians are assaulted in Chinatown. Street vendors are robbed in Fruitvale. News crews have their cameras stolen while reporting the crime. Everyone is in danger. Failed leadership, including the movement to defund the police, our district attorney's unwillingness to charge and prosecute people who murder and commit life-threatening serious injuries, and the proliferation of anti-police rhetoric have created a heyday for Oakland criminals. If there are no consequences for committing crime in Oakland, crime will continue to soar. That seems like common sense, but not for everybody. People are moving out of Oakland in droves. Businesses, small and large, struggle and close, tax revenues vanish, and we are creating the notorious doom loop where life in our city continues to spiral downward. As economic pain increases, the conditions that help create crime and criminals are exacerbated by desperate people with no employment opportunities. We are in crisis and elected officials must declare a state of emergency and bring resources together from the city, the the county, and the state to end this crisis. We are 500 police officers short of the number that experts say Oakland needs. Our 911 system does not work. Residents now know that help will not come when danger confronts them. Worse, criminals know it too. Our youth must be given alternatives to the crippling desperation that feeds crime, drugs, and prison. They need quality education, mentorship, and most importantly, real economic opportunities. Oakland should focus on creating skilled industrial and logistic jobs that pay family-sustaining wages. Unfortunately, 
progressive policies have failed and failed leadership have chased away or delayed significant blue collar job development in the city, the port of Oakland and the former army base that must change, man, that's, that, that's a heavy letter and, and very straightforward. You know, Chris, while we spend our time letting cable news keep us enraged about every word that comes out of Trump and DeSantis's mouth or about every political stunt that they pull, it's good to see community leaders who are focused on supporting our youth, who are focused on family sustaining wages, education, violence and holding elected officials in their own community accountable. This also further proves the point, though, Chris that defund the police isn't something most black people actually support. We want the police to act right. We don't want necessarily want less police in our neighborhoods. And I think it shows that, and this is along with the, we we saw the the poll that said 70% of black people don't support defunding the police. And it shows that it's primarily a project of academics and activists, many of whom who don't even live in our community. Injustice in the criminal justice system hurts black people. But lawlessness in the streets hurts us as well. And those who are too ideologically committed can't seem to process the complexities of that reality. This particular letter is strong, but nuanced. It really hits on the dynamic I was just talking about. The, the, the way that poverty does push people into, does make people, you know, may, maybe uh, put them in a position where they're more likely to commit certain crimes that they wouldn't otherwise push, but also the way letting crime go just makes crime worse. I mean, it's a very nuanced letter, a very strong letter, and it's one that doesn't really take a side. And I know some of us don't like that, but this is taking a strong position without necessarily taking a side, which can both be wrong on a very critical issue. But go ahead, Chris. I just want to hear what you what you had to say about this piece. I think just from a, a tactical perspective, I first want to say this is why it's really important for organizations and people who are going to make a public statement to to work on your statement because this is a this is a very very good letter. It is well written, like you said. It is direct. I I kind of think you know when I looked at it, I, I thought about again something that, that I think about a lot. Like this is a massive opening, especially in local politics for conservative politicians and conservative political parties who mostly, I will say, have seemed to this point too socially kind of disconnected and politically clumsy to take advantage of it, but is really sitting there for the taking. Uh, there's there's a line in the letter that I think encapsulates the core of the message. They say there is nothing compassionate or progressive about allowing criminal behavior to fester and rob Oakland residents of their basic rights to public safety. Wow. Say that one more time, if, if you don't mind. Let's do it again. There is nothing compassionate or progressive about allowing criminal behavior to fester and rob Oakland residents of their basic rights to public safety. It is not racist or unkind to want to be safe from crime. No mm. one should live in fear in our city. I, I thought, Justin, that they had maybe consulted with you on the writing of the letter because uh, it was it, it was it was, it was very powerful. But, that, but, yeah. but, but that we know that public witness has been there long before and campaign, but it did sound like something we could write for sure. For sure. And I think one of the reasons I'm grateful for the letter is because I think the advocates in city after city across the United States could really just grab this letter and 
like use the search and replace function, you know, and just, you know, search Oakland, insert Chicago, and we'd be ready to go. And, you know, I, I do believe that as time goes forward, like I, I could see Chicago, for instance, soon getting to this kind of a place, because this is not a matter of being opposed to meaningful police reform, right? Uh, people in, in, in black communities, low-income communities, brown communities know that police reform is needed. But in a lot of cases, we have allowed the pendulum to swing too far now in the opposite direction. People do not want to feel harassed and threatened by police. Uh, and anybody who wants to be honest about it has to admit that black people, poor people, people of color have for too long felt that way in their communities. But people also don't want to feel harassed and threatened by lawless criminals in their communities either. And I really, I get in some trouble in my own city about this, but I will continue to say shame on any elected official, conservative or progressive, Democrat or Republican, who through their policy decisions and their rhetoric basically make their message to our community, pick your poison. Right. Either be harassed by an unaccountable and undertrained police force or be terrorized by an unchecked criminal element in the community. I, I continue to believe I don't think I'll ever change. I don't I think that that's a false choice to tell the community that you either have to be terrorized by police or be terrorized by criminals. I think that the Oakland NAACP's letter is simply saying that we can remove both of these scourges from our communities. We can invest in our youth and hold criminals accountable. It's not an either-or decision. Uh, and, and I don't think that that's an unreasonable demand or an unattainable goal. Like, this, is, this should be the direction of public policy. It is heartbreaking and confusing to me that we don't have more elected officials, states, attorneys, and district attorneys, mayors, council members, city council members who take this approach to public policy that was articulated in this letter. And this letter is so good because, again, one of the things that that one of the things that goes wrong when we're addressing criminal justice or anything that becomes ideological is that we allow buzzwords to throw off the whole conversation. Yeah. So once somebody says something, you say, oh, that's racist or oh, that's and it's like the whole conversation is over. We can't really thoroughly examine you know, what we need to look at the policies because somebody just throws a buzzword out there and ends the whole conversation. This letter doesn't allow that to happen. It's not right. We need to basically saying let's open this conversation up and it's not racist. It's not this. It's not that to say I want to be protected. And it's sad that this, you know, that they have to say that. But I think that's important. Also, I want to get your thoughts on the idea that part of social justice is adequately handling criminality. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think you, you read it in the letter, and I, I love what they say in the letter. There is a right assumed, and, and I think even, even in our Constitution, like if you start looking at the preamble of the Constitution, this idea of, of basic public safety, it is a, a human right. I think it's a right that is uh, at least implied in our national founding documents. And if you refuse to secure that right, for people as a government, federal, state, or local, then you are withholding a right from people, which is, this is the motivation of of social justice work and civil rights work is to secure and protect those basic rights that we should have under law. And public safety 
like the NAACP and Oakland's letter articulates is certainly one of those, in my opinion. And and I, again, like I, I'll tell you, like I get in debates about this in Chicago all the time. And so I'm, I'm used to this type of conversation. I, I do think that it is a violation of civil rights to have an unaccountable and unchecked police force roaming sure. the streets of the community. I think it is an equal or greater injustice, civil and social injustice uh, to let criminals roam the streets, commit crimes, not be prosecuted for those crimes when prosecuted, not actually be penalized when convicted. That is a, you're refusing to use legitimate means of law and law enforcement to protect citizens who are just trying to live their lives. That is classic social and civil injustice. Yeah. I mean, it's not only the system, the police, the man that can put people in bondage. As I said before, lawlessness can put people in bondage. Being terrorized in your own neighborhood and people getting away with it with impunity is bond is a sort of bondage. The kid that yeah. can't just walk to school trying to get his education and just walk to school without being harassed is a form of bondage. And I, I think that's and that's what gets me like super hopped up about this. I, I know it is like to have a 12-year-old daughter who does not feel comfortable riding her her bike to camp at the neighborhood park district because of the unchecked crime in a community, right? Like that's a reality that my family actually lives in. And so it does bother me a lot when I hear people talking about, you know, talking as if it's something racist or or unjust about the idea, the basic idea that if somebody is committing a crime, firing a gun, illegally selling drugs, loitering, all this stuff, if you're doing those things that are against the laws that we have agreed are going to be the laws of this city, you need to be removed from that space. That's the the role of law enforcement. And we should require those laws to be enforced. So the people are just trying to live their lives. My daughter is in a park district program and she likes to ride her bike. It's unreasonable that she doesn't feel comfortable to ride her bike to the park. No, it's absolutely unreasonable. But again, secular progressive ideology in its lack of wisdom can prevent us from actually addressing that issue because it'll put so much language and so many other concepts and systems in front of the obvious truth. And in the same way, you get the conservatism that doesn't say, dude, it's obvious you can't just let police officers who are people get away with this stuff and not think that they're going to get punished if they do something wrong, right? It's just unfortunate that instead of moving forward and getting better policy, we have to kind of go back and state the obvious, yeah. We have to go back and say, look, this thing really had to say, look, if you don't punish criminals, crime will soar. How is that not common sense? And I, and I recently had a post, a tweet about common sense and how progressives miss common sense some, sometimes. And the funny thing about it is I had several people hit me up and say there's no such thing as common sense. And I was like, <laughs> you know what? You just proved my point. <laughs> right. Like instead of instead of working on what we know and building from what we know, we really have to start all the way over with base, basic truths. Yeah. And and that's really sad because people are suffering, man. And the fact, and here's the other sad thing. The sad thing about it is if, if you look in the public discourse, you wouldn't even know that most black people don't agree with defund the police. You really wouldn't. You wouldn't even know it. 70%. I'm not talking about 
50.2%, right? I'm talking about over 70% of African-Americans don't support defund the police, but those in power choose those of us that they want to represent us to say what they want us to say and what they want to hear. And so you don't hear that. And, And that's why I think the church politics podcast is important. All the leaders, you know, who are part of the end campaign are important because we don't always get everything right, but we are trying to represent a certain perspective. Now, there may be things that majority of African-Americans believe that I disagree with, but I would hope that me and Chris would say this is a disagreement rather than act like we represent the whole the whole community. For sure. Uh, And so there's just so much that I think we have to really dig into. But this letter was just very awfully done. Go ahead. Yeah, I I, I do just want to say to my more conservative brothers and sisters that that 70 percent, 70 plus percent opposition to defund the police does not mean that you can trot out a candidate who cannot mouth and articulate an intelligent critique of the historical injustices that black people have experienced as it relates to policing and think that that person is going to get elected and get black people to vote for them. It, that's the the other side of this false choice. But I, I really think if, if there is like a local political operation that is really able to find a candidate that can really articulate and embody uh, the spirit of the letter that, that you read at the top of the segment, Justin, I think that's a wide opening in a lot of cities and, you know, hasn't been exploited just yet. What I want y'all to do, though, is we'll have it in the show notes. Read the letter for yourselves. Look at the nuance that is used and look at the way that it does not take a side. It takes a very clear position. It does not take a side. It actually uses the sides to act to get something done. Yeah. Right. It, it, it puts progressive policies out there. It puts other stuff out there to make them feel like, oh, we might need to do something. If this letter were to take a side, this letter would have been completely they could might as well have not written it. It would be completely impotent. But because it had the nuance, because it you know, because it played played in even to some into some of the dynamics really well. The folks who wrote it knew that it was more likely to get some sort of response because of how it was written. And it was written with integrity, I think, well thought out. But again, read it for yourself. I think you'll appreciate the nuance. We will be right back on the Church Politics Podcast. Are you too progressive for conservatives and too conservative for progressives? As a Christian, do you find yourself feeling politically homeless? If so, then you're not alone. Listen, this is Justin Gibney, president of the AND campaign. And if you're a Christian who doesn't know a whole lot about politics or someone who knows a good deal about politics but wants to be more faithful in the public square, then you have to read the AND campaign's book, Compassion and Conviction. The AND Campaign's Guide to Faithful Civic Engagement that we published with InterVarsity Press. Whether you just want to understand the relationship between church and state, why Christians should engage politics at all, how Christians should engage partisanship, politics and race, advocacy and protest, or even civility, this is the book for you. It's very much Bible-centered. It's Bible study and small group friendly. There are questions and exercises after every chapter that give you a framework for engaging politics in a biblical way. So if you want to do it in a better way, get our book, Compassion and Conviction, The End Campaign's Guide to Faithful Civic Engagement. And we 
podcast with Justin Gibney and the right reverend Christopher Butler. Chris, a new New York Times Siena College presidential primary poll was just released and it shows that former president Donald Trump is completely obliterating the rest of the Republican field. Trump right now, even with these indictments and everything that's going on, is at 54% in this poll. And the closest person to him, Ron DeSantis, is at 17%. In fact, Chris, you can combine every other candidate's numbers, obviously, and it still wouldn't add up to what Trump has, right? He's above 50. So if, if you combine them all into one candidate, they would still lose fairly handily, right? I don't know, Chris. This this is interesting to me. I can't say that I'm surprised, but I feel like the indictments actually helped Trump, right? Especially the, the first New York indictment, which I think really poorly reflected and almost poisoned the well for some of the other indictments that I think were probably more substantive. Now, we know that on Tuesday, Trump received his third indictment for his hand in trying to overturn the 2020 election results. And that indictment comes from the Justice Department special counsel. It's in, here's the other thing that's interesting to me, because 54 percent is a lot right now. You know, usually it was like, OK, Trump has his 30, 35 percent that's going to get him through because he has that base and it's hard for anybody to get over that. But he's gone up. And it reminds me, Chris, of when so many Christian conservatives said, oh, we voted for Trump just because Hillary was so bad. But now. When a lot of folks have a lot of other candidates that they could vote for, still, most everyone is voting for Trump. I mean, is supporting Trump right now, according to this poll. Now, listen to this, too. 53% believe that Trump's actions after, 2020, after the 2020 election went so far that he threatened democracy. That's just of all Americans, right? They also believe, most Americans also believe that he committed serious crimes. The other thing that's interesting is that compared to DeSantis, Republicans think that Trump is a strong leader. They think that he'll more likely get things done, that he's more likely uh, able to beat Biden and that he's fun, whatever that means. But Republicans do admit that he's less likable and less moral. But even for Christians, I I guess less moral doesn't actually matter. So no one really cares about that. And again, after the new indictments, even though they think that his actions uh, went too far and threatened democracy, he's tied with Biden right now. And it's just so interesting to me. And, and, and again, I think it comes down to he's the one that they feel like obviously is being attacked by the left the most. And that really pisses the left off the most because I'm trying and part of this is disbelief. So I'm, I'm, I'm lacking in words right now, but. He's shown us, Chris, that he only cares about himself. He doesn't care about democracy. He doesn't care about the Republican Party. But for some reason, there's this deep attachment to him that's only growing. What are your thoughts, Chris? Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, you know, for sure, like one, one of the things that we don't say enough about Donald Trump is that he is a highly, highly skilled politician and particularly campaigner like he is funny and entertaining um, and is why he found so much success in all those domains of life that 
are to me are not quite as consequential as being president of the United States. Um, but those those skills, I think a lot of them do transfer. And but the, one of the reasons I probably I think that the biggest reason for Trump's dominance in the polls that we see right now is is kind of reflected to me in the way that the New York Times reported their own poll. Right. Because when I read the poll, I'm like, way to bury the lead. You know, like Donald Trump is not the president of the United States, number one. And number two, the job of all those who oppose a candidate for elected office is to present the public with a better option. And when I read this poll, my headline is Joe Biden is in considerable, considerable trouble. I read a ton of red flags in this poll. You, If you look at, because they didn't just poll Republican primary voters, which is what you would think if you just read the New York Times headline, you would think they only polled Republican primary voters. They, this was a, a wide and expansive poll. And when you look at the general electorate, you got 65% of the general electorate thinking that the country is on the wrong track. Trump's not the president. Biden is the president. Joe Biden has a 54% disapproval rating, 54% unfavorable rating. And the general voting population, Trump's unfavorables are at 55%, one point above Biden's statistical tie in terms of unfavorability. And this is in the general electorate after so many years of most of the mainstream media being very much against Donald Trump. Donald Trump is facing, you know, two, now three indictments. You're the sitting president and you got the same favorability as the former president who is at at the time of the poll twice indicted, now three times indicted. That's a big alarm. 64% inside the Democratic primary base today 64% 64% say that if the primary were today, they would vote for Biden. And that's the part that most of the media are choosing to like celebrate because last year that number was, was much lower. But still, when they asked Democratic primary voters if they think that Biden should be the nominee, only 45% think that he should be. 64%, so you got 20% in there basically who are like, he shouldn't be the nominee, but it seems like he's going to be the nominee so if we're going to have the primary, if my primary today, I vote for him because it's going to be him anyway. But I really don't think he's the right guy. Only 20 percent say that they are enthusiastic about Biden. Twenty eight percent say that they are dissatisfied or upset with the idea that Joe Biden is going to be the Democratic Party standard bearer. So if you take all of that context and you look at Trump's dominance, like you, you already said, he's 54 percent, you know, winning 54 percent of the the vote, 52% of Republican primary voters say they're not even considering another candidate, right? So this support on the Trump side is really, really solid. And, and that's compared to a very, very soft support in the Biden camp. And, and that number, when you look at the overall 43 to 43, so it's a statistical you know, tie between Trump and Biden, only, uh, I think it's like 4% of people who are, who are thinking about a different candidate or undecided, 6% are saying they're not getting in, right? So, so this is basically going to come down to organization and turnout, right? And when you put that in those contexts, if I'm in Biden world right now, I'm asking myself, is it more likely today that, is a, that there's a 42-year-old white male 
Trump voter in Western Pennsylvania who has not yet heard that Donald Trump has been indicted and will probably be indicted again? Or is it more likely that there's a 62-year-old black woman in Philadelphia who hasn't heard that Cornel West is going to be on the ballot? Is it more likely that there's a pro-life woman in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan who's going to walk away from Trump because he's not pushing hard on that issue this year? Or is it more likely that there's some mother or grandmother in a suburb of Grand Rapids that hasn't yet heard that Joe Biden did not his seventh grandchild, right? Is it more likely that you got a Republican in the south of Georgia who's going to like hear something terrible about Donald Trump and what he did on January 6th and change his mind about Donald Trump? Or is it more likely that there's some super progressive activist in the Atlanta area who's just sick and tired of a Democratic Party, who always uses progressive policies to bludgeon uh, Republicans in election season, but then never manages to get those progressive policies into their actual governing agenda. This is a, a massive, massive red flag, the way I read it, for Democrats. And it seems like the decision has been to just like look past it, try to make it seem like that you know there's nothing to see here. And I think acting like your candidate's not in trouble may turn out to be a bad electoral strategy. That's just my view. I don't think that too many people are going to learn something about Donald Trump in the next year that they don't know today. I think it's much more likely that that happens in relation to Joe Biden. And in fact, they haven't learned anything good about him since his numbers have gone up. Right. <laughs> like you've only heard bad things about him since the numbers have risen and it didn't do anything to him. So I agree with you from the, the uh, point of view that Biden is not sitting pretty. I mean, Biden has a lot to worry about. The Democrats aren't sitting pretty. I think what their response may be is what what choice do we have? What, what do we do? Telling the president not to run. Good luck with that. Who are you going to replace him with? Yeah. Uh, the, one of the reasons that he's there because people felt like he was the most electable and it seems like they might have been right. What do you do? I think people are reading 2020 in that way. And I think that's a wrong reading of 2020. 2020 is not an election in, in my view. I've worked on some campaigns, you know, done some statewide stuff. I'm not the world's greatest uh, political. But when I look at the numbers, I see 2020 being a campaign, not that Joe Biden won, but one that Donald Trump lost. Right. And, and that's a, that's another big red flag. Well, would you, but you could also say he lost it because he was getting against a candidate who allowed, you know what I'm saying, who it was possible to lose it to. Right. Does that make sense? It, it was possible, but I, it came into the realm of possibility, perhaps because of Joe Biden. One, I think Joe Biden positions in 2020 a lot differently than he does in 2024. And, you know, people like me would say to the Democratic Party, who is obviously, you know, making these arguments, one thing you could do is just kind of like trust this thing that we have called democracy, right? Like have debates, democracy. Uh, let, let people like consider their options, see where the thing goes. Because, you know, you, you could like run Biden out there and win, but this poll would be saying to me, like, that is a risky risky maneuver yeah i mean it's this is going in the, in all the wrong ways this is going to be an interesting election cycle and i just ask that christians put the issues out there do your homework and, and hold folks accountable because uh the fact that we're in this position where we're very likely to have two candidates that most people don't want very likely to have two candidates who have some you know have both of them are facing some corruption issues too and we haven't gotten into the biden you know the uh, hunter biden stuff that's more and more closely bringing his father into the conversation yeah becoming joe biden and so we'll, we'll, we'll get into that but it's not pretty and so for those of us who care about 
corruption, who care about those issues, it brings even more questions into this election cycle. So yeah, it's I don't I don't even know where to start. I mean, it, it just seems like yes, we have a democracy, but there's it's been compromised in a, in a lot of different ways, and we got to find a better ways to, as you say, trust democracy and find better processes and and all that to make sure that people's voice is actually getting out there. Because the fact that most people don't want two candidates and yet those candidates are still going to be in there, that's not the ideal, guys. It's, it's just not. I'll let you uh, take us out, though. Yeah, I mean, I I think you look at this whole situation, you certainly see kind of a failure of democracy. But if if you are concerned about the possibility of another Donald Trump presidency, I think there's a whole lot of work to do. And it ain't just telling people that Donald Trump, you know, did bad stuff at January 6th, because that, as much as we try to make it be different, at the end of the day, that is old news. Like, people are not learning that. That's two years old. And people have said, that notwithstanding, they're going to support Donald Trump. And I think it, I think it comes back to a lot of things that that people are experiencing in their everyday lives. And if we just spent a little bit more time trying to make life a little bit better for regular people, probably have different political outcomes. But that's my two cents. There we go. We will be right back on the Church Politics Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. I was reading The Hill earlier this week, and I ran into an interesting article, and I also saw it on Breaking Points. According to new data, 12th grade boys are nearly twice as likely to identify as conservative versus liberal, according to a respected federal survey of American youth. The figures represent a striking shift, according to The Hill, a striking shift in the political views of boys. As recently as the late 2000s, liberal boys occasionally outnumbered conservatives. Back in the Carter era, both boys and girls leaned liberal. Nowadays, it shows that girls are drifting further left, also young women drifting further left. But, you know, we are seeing this trend of boys becoming more conservative, which is interesting to me. Now, one thing I think as you read the article, look at the survey, you'll find is some of this is relative, right? Conservative for a young boy might not be conservative for a 65-year-old, right? It may just be relative or in comparison to where the women in there, I mean, the, 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 the girls in there around them, you know, where they are. But I think as we talked about, what was that, a week or two ago, um, just the kind of almost the feminization of society that we talked about, the, the, the trouble that boys have finding their way all play a part in in this conversation. But what were what your thoughts on this article, Chris? Yeah, I, I certainly, I think it's really interesting. Uh, 
to look at this. And like you said, this is like a self-identify type poll, right? So it's not, it's not so much going through issue by issue. It's just really asking, are you more conservative? Are you more liberal? And so when you have so many boys self-identifying as quote unquote conservative in a culture that is so dominated by this strange form of progressivism, I think it speaks into, you know, what I still think is a moment of of political rethink and realignment and shifting. Because what you have is boys saying, I'm looking at this progressive agenda and I know I'm not that, right? Because like you said, if you match issue to issue, this is not the conservative of a 65-year-old man. But it is boys looking at what they're saying around them, what they're hearing in rhetoric, and clearly saying, I am not that. Right. And so when I look at posts like these, I see a moment for people to to start trying to think differently, to speak differently, to shape uh, more interesting approaches to public policy. Because I do think there's an opening, almost like we talked about in the, in the first segment. I think there's an opening for something in our politics that really is just not there. And I pray that at some point soon, people are able to put their finger on it because I, I think a lot of boys are just looking at this and being like, you know, I would like to be kind of masculine. I don't want to be made to feel like that is like politically unacceptable in some way right. or opposed to the cause of justice and equity to be masculine. Right. Right. I don't want to embrace that kind of ideology. Mm-hmm. So that's that's really the only thing that, that, that I kind of see in, in this particular poll. Yeah, and the interesting thing is there's been a lot of talk when you look at polls about Generation Z that this is the most progressive generation that that there is. And so you you see a lot of progressives and Democrats going back into the demographics as destiny. Yeah. And I think that's a dangerous place to go. First of all, when you're talking about Generation Z, you got to be careful on taking too much from the stance that really young folks have now when they haven't worked or they have yeah. right they haven't necessarily been through life and some of the struggles and it show and we already know that as people get older they tend to get more quote unquote mm-hmm. conservative right so there's only so much that we can take from this on either side right when you're talking about people who haven't and that doesn't mean that their opinion doesn't matter but it does mean that it can change that it may be likely to change at some point and so we have to we have to figure that in uh, but again, you never know. One thing I've learned, and you know, I don't know if you ever heard this from your elders, but they'll just tell you keep living. Oh yeah, our our ability to predict what's going to happen based on those type of forecasts is really bad. It doesn't take into account, I mean, the overreach that we're seeing on, in many cases, on the left right now. I mean, mm-hmm. there's a lot of dynamics there, and I'm not one who wants all young people to be conservative, but I certainly want them to question some of the things that they're seeing on the left and the right. Mm -hmm. I want them to be, you know, to be critical of what they're being fed in school, what they're being fed in pop culture. That's what I want. Yeah. Right. And there's an opportunity because you can almost feel sometimes like, man, I don't know what to do. You know, the control of pop culture, the control of academia, you know, how do you fight against that? But you never know. And I, and you never know when you're planting seeds and maybe a book you write or some, somebody will go back years later and it'll, it'll spark something. You got to keep pushing for people to be critical, for people to be more thoughtful. And you never know where this thing is going because it's been predicted many times. And many, many people, probably most people have been wrong on exactly where it's going. It doesn't mean we can't make prediction, projections or that they're in bad faith. It just means sometimes they're just worth a grain of salt at that. Go ahead, Chris. Yeah, I think that this is we're living through a, a moment where a lot of people's 
uh, I guess kind of innate social and political aspirations don't fit easily into really either of the dominant narratives that we have. It's a moment that begs for new visionary leadership. And so that's sort of what I pray is forthcoming. Likewise. I mean, we, we, we need it. Again, guys, well, you know, that'll end for today. But again, I want to remind you that if you want some of these premium episodes that you can go to patreon.com slash church politics podcast. Also, if you write us a note there and ask a question, we might even answer your question on that premium account. So check that out. We need your help. There's a lot of content that we're putting out and we need your help to continue to do it. So thank you for joining us as always. You know what it is, folks. There's a cross that neither political conservatism nor progressivism is fit to bear. There's a civic hearing in need of faithful witnesses who love social justice and won't surrender the truth to be loved by the world. Politic with the boldness and compassion of Jesus Christ. Until next time, Ann Kim. I'll let you.